This is episode 9 of the CB Northwest and Camp Tadmore events podcast. We're continuing our most recent event, Winter Youth Celebration 2018. The theme was Become, Romans 6, 17-18. Here is session 4 with Katie Faust. Thanks for having me because um, I love this. I love you. I love this generation. Um, I actually think, no, I know that you guys are the ones that are going to change the world. Like really, really. I know that people talk a lot of smack about, you know, millennials and Gen Z and all of that. But the ones that I know, they're serious about the things that God wants them to be serious about. And they have a passion for justice. And they are deep thinkers. And I have so much hope for our world because of what I see God doing through the people who are in middle school and high school right now. And if I, if I could do this any way I wanted, I would just go out individually with all of you guys for coffee and we would talk for a couple hours. Because I'm not, I'm not a presenter, I'm a discusser. Like, I like to have a conversation. Um, there is a Faust in our house who can create a topic and start at A and figure out what Z is and know every place that goes in between. And you did not get that Faust today, right? That's my husband and he's amazing at what he does. I like to jump around. Um, So we're gonna tackle several different topics, but what I really, really want, where I think the magic is, is Q&A, right? I think the magic is answering, giving honest answers to honest questions that you guys have. And we're gonna talk this session and tomorrow um, about two things, really, sex and gender. Sex and gender, um, and all the different things that go along with that. Sex and gender is not the most central aspect of the gospel. There's a, there's a hundred other things that are more important than sex and gender when you want to talk about like biblical orthodoxy. But true or false, sex and gender is what tends to get in the way of people even considering the gospel right now right? These are the questions. This is the place where the truth claims of Christianity are hitting, hitting the cultural shore. And I don't know how often the church responds with satisfying answers to those questions. And so really what I want is I want you guys to leave knowing more than anyone else about everything, knowing more than your parents do, knowing more than your classmates, knowing more than your gender studies professor, okay? I want you to know the most. I never want you to feel ashamed of what God has laid out in terms of his design for sex and marriage because it is so good. It is so good. Now, since we can't have an individual conversation, what we're going to do is we're going to try something called Slido.com. And this is where you guys can get out your phone. You can either download the Slido app or just go to Slido.com. And then you push in this code, this um, WYC18. That's the first thing it's going to ask you. And you can plug in your questions. Okay, so if questions come up for you and you think, man, I really want an answer to this question then I want you to put it in the, in the app or in the website. Now, you're also going to be able to see the questions that other people have asked, and you'll be like, oh, that's, that's actually a better question or a better phrasing, or I, like, I would like to hear the answer to that. So then you can upvote that question. And then when I'm done with my little chat tonight, we're just going to go all the way with Q&A, um, and we'll all get to kind of look at what's on here, um, and then we'll just kind of hammer it out. 
Let me give you a brief outline of tonight and tomorrow so that you know what's happening. Tonight we're going to talk about marriage and we're going to talk about sex. Okay, so tonight we're talking about, right? I mean, we're beyond the stage of being like, oh, sexy, right? That's a little more like two or three years ago for you. You're like, sex, I can handle it. I can, right? That's where you are, right? Raise your hand if you can handle it. Raise your hand if you're suppressing a laugh and you still kind of giggle about it. Okay, great. Well, that's okay. You're welcome here. You're welcome here too. So we're not going to put the questions up yet, but you can start plugging in your questions now, now let me tell you what we're going to talk about tomorrow morning. Tomorrow morning we're going to talk about gender, same-sex attraction and homosexuality, and transgender ideology and gender dysphoria. So if tonight you think about questions that have to do with um, same-sex attraction, go ahead and hold on to those. You don't need to plug in those questions tonight. You can hold on to them, and we'll tackle them in the morning. So tonight we're talking sex, gender, marriage. I'm sorry, we're talking about sex and marriage. Um, okay. Little background, I didn't grow up in church. Um, I grew up, my mom and dad were married until I was 10. I was really, really connected to both of them. And I was absolutely clueless that their marriage was struggling. And then when I was 10, all of a sudden they said, we're getting a divorce. And I lost it. I lost it because the only divorces that I knew about was where the dad like moved away completely or the kids only saw him every other weekend or whatever. And I was terrified that I was gonna lose a relationship with my dad. Um, thankfully, both my mom and my dad understood how much I needed the other parent, and it was a good divorce. It was a divorce where um, I still got to see both of them. I was really connected to them. My parents got along really well. We still spent a lot of holidays together. My dad moved about a mile away. There was no parenting agreement. I could go to whatever house I wanted, which was great. My dad dated several different women and ended up remarrying, and he was married to his previous wife for 10 years until he passed away. Very soon after my parents divorced, my mom fell in love with a woman, and they have been together ever since. So I was there two nights ago, right? I'm really close to my mom. I love her partner. I would not say her partner is my mom. I don't have two moms, but I will say her partner is my friend. And um, I've never, I've, so I kind of grew up middle school, high school time, kind of in this community of women, and um, feeling actually pretty comfortable with gay and lesbians. Um, and that it was not until I actually went to college that I started kind of asking those questions about um, what the Bible had to say about sex and marriage. So um, that's kind of a little bit of my history. And we'll talk a little bit more about why I got into what I'm doing now as the time goes by, as the night goes by. So first, um, Let's just pause, and I want to ask you, we'll do, as I was watching Access, and I'm like, oh, they're so good. Access is so good. Look at them with all the multimedia, and they're having you guys discuss among yourself. So we're going to do that. Okay, so we'll go to slide number one. Slide number one. Okay, can you read this? So look at these issues, right? You're looking at some of the biggest struggles that we're facing today as a society, right? The greatest social ills that we're setting up organizations to develop and trying to figure out how to, how to fix this and government intervention and all of that. Like these are massive issues that we're facing today. So look at these. And I want you to discuss with the people around you, hashtag access style. And I want you to say, if you could solve one of those, which one would it be and why? Okay, talk to the people around you and say, if you could solve one of those problems, which ones would it be and why? So welcome.
So you had a chance to talk. Um, this is, I mean, it's hard. It, I think it's really hard to choose from this list. So next slide, please, please. Okay, what if there was an all of the above option? What if you could do one thing and decimate all of those other issues? Take them down to nearly nothing. Would you do it? Okay, yeah, I would too. Now, it would be hard to do it if it cost billions and billions of dollars. But what if I told you that the solution to all of these problems, the best solution that we have, is actually the cheapest solution that government has out there. It's the cheapest solution. Anybody want to guess what that solution is? Raise your hand. You. Oh, nope. Okay. Um, well, I mean, obviously, Jesus is going to play into this, but so here's the other thing. There's two different Fausts in our house, right? One Faust is exegetical Faust, and one Faust is social science Faust. So you guys invited social science Faust to speak to you today. Exegetical Faust might be here next year, okay? Now, Jesus obviously is going to play into this, but what else? Do you have any other guesses about what the one thing would be that could kind of take care of all these other issues? Thoughts? What do you think? More what? That's a very good answer, and, and that's not it either. Yeah. Because we actually have a lot of education about things like birth control and sex ed that leads to um, some of these struggles, especially like high rates, high teen pregnancy rates, and that the education has not really made a dent in that. Any other guesses? Give me one more big fat guess. Yes. Stand up. Stand up. Tell everyone your name. Aziza. Aziza said marriage. Give her a hand. Okay. Okay. Good job. Thank you. Okay. So that's right. So the answer is actually fatherlessness. Okay. Fatherlessness is a major contributing factor to every one of the things that we listed up here. So if you want to go to the next slide, it might be a little hard to read depending on, okay. So here's all of those issues that we just laid out. And it's hard to see from where you are, but I'll explain. The red bar is the percentage of kids in that category who are fatherless. The green bar is the one who come from households with their married mother and father. And the dark gray is other, okay? So youth suicides, you'll see top left, right? Um, youth suicides, about 63% of youth who commit suicide are fatherless. Um, homelessness is 90%. 90% of homeless youth are fatherless. Behavioral disorders is up around 85%. Poverty is about 50%. You are four times more likely to live in poverty without a father. And so that's how it goes all the way down. Now, society has faced this problem since the dawn of time. Um, how do you get fathers to stick around? So we're going to talk about that. Because if you can get fathers to stick around, to be in the life of their child forever, do you understand what we could do to the incarceration rate? Incarceration means you're in jail. Different studies will put the number at 75 to 85% of men in jail were fatherless. Like, jails are literally holding tanks for fatherless boys. So what would happen if fathers returned to their families? So one 
thing that I, well, I've started an organization and it's called Them Before Us. The idea is them, the kids, come before us, the adults. I don't care what kind of adult you are. I don't care if you're gay or straight or single or married. I don't care. Your desires, whatever's going on in your life, should not take something from the child that the child has a right to. Now, when a child is born, they actually have a nearly universally recognized right to the two people responsible for their existence, their biological mother and their biological father. And if you are able to solve the problem of getting both of those people to raise the child together forever, you wipe out most of those issues that we're facing as a society. Okay, so why is that? Oh, here's the reason, here's the thing. This is why I, this is why I got into this debate. I actually like keeping my friends. I like to be liked. I don't like to be unliked. I'm much more like on the truth teller and grace giver scale. I'm on the grace giver side of things. I would rather not shake things up. I would rather not say the hard things so that I can keep people happy. But I don't know if you remember, how old were you guys in 2012? Like babies, right? You were babies back then. So in 2012, we were having this big debate in Washington and all across the country about gay marriage and whether or not gay marriage should be legal. And my mom's in a gay relationship, I'm really tight with her, and I love her, and I think that she's precious and wonderful, and I think her partner is precious and wonderful, and I hope that I'm in like the top three people that they think love them with all of their might, but I totally disagree with gay marriage. But I still wouldn't get into the debate because, oh, I didn't want people not to like me. But then they started to say, but if you don't agree with gay marriage, you're a bigot. And I was like, well, that's fighting words right there. Because marriage, right, it's as if the only reason why you would oppose gay marriage is because of ignorance, hatred, phobia, or like you didn't know any gay people or you hated them. And I was like, you know, that's such garbage because marriage is the most child-friendly institution the world has ever known. And then I heard the gay lobby say things like, kids like it. Kids that are raised by two moms or two dads they like it. They're great. They don't have any problems at all. Now, I've worked with enough kids because my husband and I did youth ministry for a long time. And when you get a kid alone, right, when you're having that quiet time after youth group and they stay after and they want to talk to you or you're at a conference like this and some speaker gives an emotional something and then they come back to you and they want to tell you the thing that's breaking their heart, do you know what it's about? That they wish their dad would love them or they wish that their mom hadn't died, or they wish that their father hadn't abandoned them. Like, one of the most universal human longings is to be known and loved by your mom and dad. And there is so much pain when you don't have it. And so I had had dozens of these conversations with kids and it didn't matter how they lost a relationship with their mom or dad. Maybe their parents divorced and they still know who their dad is, but they only see him in the summer and it just kills you because you actually are made to have him love you and adore you and encourage you every day of the year. You're not meant to have a summertime relationship with him. And I, I have sweet, sweet kids in our ministry who don't have a mother and they are so off kilter they have such a hard time finding their way in the world because there is nobody in their corner nurturing, 
kissing their face, listening to them when they come home from, being concerned about their immediate well-being. Um, and it's so painful. And so what, the, what I heard from the gay lobby is kids don't care if they're being raised by two moms or two dads. Now that is a problem. Because the only way for a kid to be in that household is to lose a relationship with their mom or dad. And I don't care if you have gay parents or a step-parent or whatever, the process of losing that parent is painful. And if you look at the statistics, the effects are long-lasting. So that's what finally pushed me over the edge and I decided I gotta start saying something. Because when you start lying about kids, that's where you cross the line for me. Okay, so I jumped in and I started to write about marriage and why marriage is actually a social justice issue for children. For the A, because their hearts are broken when they don't have both their mom and dad. And B, every social ill that we're facing as a country today comes down to losing a relationship with one or both parents, usually the father. Okay, so when I talk to, you know, an easy way to talk about this is, like, why is it that, that kids fall prey to those serious social issues, poverty and homelessness and behavioral issues, um, when they don't have a dad or when they don't have a mom, even though those kids are harder to find in random samples? Well, think about your diet. Think about your physical diet, right? There's three what they call macronutrients in your physical diet, things that you need to get lots and lots and lots of if you're going to be healthy. So one of them is carbohydrates, which gives you fast energy. One of them is protein, which helps with muscle development and immune system function. And one of them is fat, right? And that helps with long-term en energy storage. So if you do not have one or more of those macronutrients, you will be malnourished. It will be very hard for you to do things like stay awake or run a mile. Like those are simply things that your body needs. Now, when you want to talk about a child's social emotional diet, you also have three macronutrients, three things that are the staples, the things you need in large doses, and it's, you need other things too, but here's the three things that you need for your basic social emotional diet as a child as you grow. You need your mother's love, you need your father's love, and you need stability. You need those three things. Let me, and let me pause and say one quick thing, because this is, this is hard stuff, like what we're talking about. And if you are in that group of people who have suffered um, because you've lost a relationship with your mom or dad or your parents are divorced, I'm talking statistics. You're feeling, you're feeling the pain. And so I get it. And, and it's hard for me to kind of rip through this. But on the other hand... I actually think it's pretty important for you to be able to put your finger on what's going on and why it hurts. Let me say one other thing. I am not saying that step-parents are bad. I know really heroic step-parents out there, really heroic step-parents who are doing an incredible job of conforming their life to the needs of the step-kids in their life. But those step-kids are still, still statistically have some pretty significant challenges in their life as a result, okay? So I just want to say that right out of the gate. Um, so let's talk macronutrients, love of your mother, love of your father, and stability, okay? Those are the three things kids need a huge dose of. Now, some people think, well, you know, kids just need to be loved, right? It doesn't matter if it's a dad or a mom or a guy or a girl or whatever. 
That's actually a complete sociological lie that social scientists have been studying family structure for a long time, and they actually will say, people that study parenting, they'll say there's actually no such thing as parenting. There's mothering and there's fathering. The way that men and women interact with kids is so different that they'll say there's no way for a mother to father, and there's no way for a father to mother. They're that different. And we're going to talk a little bit about gender differences as we move on, but one of the starkest ways that we see differences in gender is in parenting styles. So we'll just kind of throw out some of the differences. So by eight weeks old, a baby can tell the difference between a male and female face. By eight weeks old, right? That baby already can see the difference and, and tell when they're interacting with a male or a female. Crazy. Mothers and fathers play differently than one another. And I can see this in our house so much. So fathers tend to play with kids, and mothers tend to care for kids. So if you've got a mom and dad in your life, like, think about that. Dads tend to bring the fun. In fact, I was sitting right over here um, when Axis was talking, and I looked out, and I saw a sailboat. And I was taken back, and my dad and I used to sail on this river right there, right? And we'd go all the way down to the channel marker and then back up. And I didn't sail with my mom. Um, I did almost fall off the boat several times with my dad, right? He taught me how to hike out and pack a spinnaker and things like that. But dads tend to push kids to take risks. Like, I was probably a little too young to be doing some of the things that I should have done. But that's what dads do, is they, like, push you outside your comfort zone. And it encourages independence and confidence in kids, Moms tend to care for kids, right? They just tend to be very concerned about their emotional. Honey, did you eat your broccoli? Did you eat all your vegetables? Okay, make sure you brush your teeth before you go to bed. Okay, honey, are you okay? That looks like it really hurt. I'm sorry. You'll come in here. Let me just hold on to you for a little while. Okay, moms and dads, right? That's th big, big differences. And I, I ran a half marathon two months ago. It was great, <laughs> until mile 10 when I tore my calf muscle. You know, such a bummer, such a bummer, and it really, really hurt. And I'm, I'm 42 years old, um, and I've got a great husband, and I've got great kids, and they were like, let me help you, let me cook for you, I'll get, and I was like fully on two crutches, I couldn't put any weight on my leg, um, and the doctor's like, you have to not walk, get off your leg, put it up at least a week, don't put any pressure on it. And so the morning after, I was, like, hobbling around the kitchen, and I realized, like, I can't even get the, the almond milk from the counter. And at probably 7.30 in the morning, I was like, Mom, can you come to Seattle and take care of me? I really wanted to. Can you just help me? And she was there in, like, three hours, right? I'm 42, and I still was like, man, I need my mom right? And my husband's great, and my kids are great, but I'm like, I, my mom is just wired for caregiving. And I needed her, you know, and so she came, and it was great. And I got a lot better, I think, because she was there. So um, fathers encourage competition among kids. Moms encourage equity. So classic example. Shout out, can I just, shout out to the, my youth group, because I practiced all this material on them. So they're hearing it all for this thing. So give them a hand. Good job, Grace Church. Good job, test group. Okay, so I just realized, I was like, I told this story at youth group too. I'm telling it again. So our family plays Monopoly, and they're very competitive. And Ryan, my husband, plays with the kids. And it is cutthroat. 
right? There is no, there is mercy at church and there's no mercy in Monopoly at our house, right? And I will, I'll like watch them play and it's a little hard for me because they're kind of mean, you know, and they're like buying up all the properties and they're making bad trades with their younger brother who does not necessarily know the value of all the railroads being sold together. And so I just have to leave, you know, and I'll come back in and I'll see that one of my kids is completely bankrupt. And there is still, like, milk in every, like, they're not showing any mercy at all. And I'm like, honey, give the kid a loan. Why can't you just show? Come on. You don't have to. Right? So I come in, and I'm like, be nice. Why can't the game be more fair and equal? Why can't you guys just share more? And Ryan's like, uh-uh. I'm going to wipe him off the map. <laughs> right? And so question for you. Which one does the kid need? Right? Which one do they need? Do they need the parent who, when the kid falls down as a four-year-old at the play equipment and starts crying, do, do they need the mom who's like, oh, honey, are you okay? Oh, that must have hurt so bad. Come in here. Or do they need the parent that goes, oh, man, you almost made it. Dude, get back up. I bet you can do it this time. Okay, so which parent do they need? Right. Right. They need both. They need both every day. They need both in all different ages, right? Moms and dads, they talk different to kids. Dad's talk is short and directive. Told you to take out the garbage. Go. Okay, mom's talk is a little more emotionally centric. Honey, um, I see that you're doing your homework, and I'm really glad, like, you're making great progress, but when you have a chance, if you could take the garbage out, um, that would be really great, okay? Thanks. Okay, so moms and dads literally talk differently to one another. Dads, when, when kids are babies, right, moms will say, did, did you like it? Was that good? Was that a little too hard? Oh, are you okay? And dads will be like, Ah, I see you're eating a Cheeto. Well, that's great. Make sure that your digestion's happening properly, right? Moms tend to make their words a little more accessible to kids, and dads tend to talk just a little bit above what they can understand, right? So if you only had the parent that was, you know, talking about systematic theology to the five-year-old, that would be hard. But if you only have the parent that was like, God is like an egg, right? There's three different parts, but it's all the same egg, right? You'd be missing out on something. Okay, so three staples of the child's social-emotional diet is mother's love, father's love, and the third staple is stability, okay? Stability is critical, especially for healthy brain function. Lots of different transitions, lots of unknown, lots of instability actually alters the architecture of your brain, especially when a child is young. If things are unpredictable or if things are sort of out of whack, out of kilter, it actually will change the cortisol levels in your brain and it will, can affect you for the rest of your life. Right? Kids that, ha that suffer incredible trauma or instability at a young age or anytime through their adolescence, it actually affects you in a physical way, and we know that those kids tend to actually have more health problems, physical health problems, autoimmune disorders and heart disease later on in life because it changes your kind of flight or fight mechanism. So now that we know that there's three staples of a child's social-emotional diet, mother's love, father's love, stability, here's the question. If you could design a system 
to ensure that every kid had all three of those all of their childhood, what would you do? How could you set up a system so that every kid had all three all their life? And it's not, it's not a cultural thing, right? It's not just American kids that need this. You know, Chinese kids need it. South African kids need it. Kids from Iceland need it. Every kid needs it because it's a human thing. It's not a cultural thing. It's a human thing. This is what humans need. Well, I think that one of the things you could do is require that no baby is even able to come into existence without the mom and dad's help. Right? Let's say that for sure no baby can exist without mom and dad being there at the time the baby's created. That's called sex. If you haven't had that chat yet, might be something to talk to your youth pastor about later. Okay? So both man and woman are required for the baby-making activity. And those are the two adults who just happen to be the most qualified to be in the child's life and raise them forever. Funny, funny little design there. Next, you could do some really fantastic, like, biological, chemical process that could connect the baby at least to one parent. So like, let's just say that the baby has to grow inside one of the parents, right? That there's a guaranteed attachment with one of the parents for the first nine and a half months of its existence, okay? And then once the baby's born and on the outside, more chemical processes that would knit the baby to the mom and ensure as much as possible a relationship of trust and attachment. And so that's what we actually see with breastfeeding and simply the way that women are wired. You've probably noticed, you've even seen it around this hotel, moms walking around literally with babies like strapped to them, right? The baby's always right. Stand up. Let us, let us all see your baby strapped to you, okay? That's, that's how it goes, okay? Now, what's going on with hero mom over here right now is the same thing that happens during breastfeeding. So whether or not you're breastfeeding, breastfeeding is ridiculous and insanely beautiful. But even if you don't breastfeed, this process right here, what happens is when the baby is close to the mom, it takes about 20 seconds. And you start to release, women especially start to release a hormone called oxytocin. Oxytocin is called the cuddle hormone right? Because you get the baby there with you and, and you release the, and you cuddle, right? The cuddling releases the oxytocin and it's involuntary. You don't get to decide whether or not the oxytocin is released. It just is. I was like holding my friend's baby the other day at, um, so that she could eat and it was a church potluck, right? And I, I had the baby and the baby was probably like four or five months old. I was walking around and it was like, I probably should have counted. It was 20 seconds, like talking to everybody, chatting with the line, just have the baby. And I suddenly went, um, and I was like, oh, I want to kiss this baby because the oxytocin's being released and the oxytocin says, this belongs to me. Oxytocin says, we're, we're, I trust you. You trust me. We belong to one another, right? That's this chemical, amazing, beautiful chemical design that happens between mothers and babies. It also happens between women and men, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. But here's the problem. When a baby's born, guaranteed, mom's in the room, right? Guaranteed. 
is, how do you ensure that the dad is in the room? Because, what was that? Chains? Stand up and identify yourself, bold soldier. Uh -huh. Yes or no, you said chains. Okay, very good. Very interestingly, you probably know this, that they used to refer to the wife as the old ball and chain, right? Because marriage chains you to someone else, right? Um, and so every culture has recognized, all right, we've got a problem here. Because it takes a man and a woman to make a baby. The mom's pretty attached. She, you know, she doesn't have an option about whether or not to be attached to the baby. And then even after the baby's born, she's got all these biological systems going on to reinforce that attachment. The problem is that if dad isn't there, it does not go well for anyone. And so every culture in society, every religion, every time in history has had the same problem. How do you make sure that the dad is there when the baby is born? And how do you make sure that the dad stays? So the way that every religion has solved this problem, because this is actually not a religious problem, and it's not an American problem, um, even though we're having problems with it, um, it's not a Korean problem, it's a human problem that when dad isn't there, it goes very badly for the woman and the child, and it goes very badly for the rest of society. And so interestingly, they all decided on the same thing, that the dad would need to commit to the mom for life before they participate in the baby-making activity, right? And until about like historically five minutes ago, we all called that marriage, right? That marriage, even though it's a private relationship, it serves this critical public purpose and there's nothing that can replace it. No amount of government programs, no Head Start programs, no welfare or food stamps or poverty intervention, big brother, big sisters, high school counselors, nothing, nothing can solve the problem like man committing to woman before the baby making activity and the commitment being a lifelong commitment. And we know that when that happens, that dad and mom commit to each other before sex and for life, that kids tend to avoid the biggest problems and society tends to be the most healthy. Now, that's actually exactly God's description and prescription for sex and marriage. That if you are following God's prescription for marriage, you will add to social flourishing in a way that nothing else will. And if you choose not to follow God's prescription for sex and marriage, you will stack the, against the, the, the deck against your child and you will contribute to some of the biggest social ills that we are seeing in society today. So, this is the deal. These days, I know that what you're hearing and maybe what you're thinking about God's design for sex and marriage is that 
it's outdated. God's out of touch. It needs to progress. And maybe God is a homophobe, right? Probably things that you've heard. Maybe things you've wondered yourself. That God's designed for sex and marriage, well, it excludes a lot of people. And God, he's kind of mean. It sounds like he's kind of mean to have this design. I love God's design for sex and marriage because it is the only solution to every major social problem that we are facing today. There's never anything to be ashamed of. In fact, you should boast in God's design for sex and marriage. You should follow God's design for sex and marriage. Do you know why? Because he designed it for you. Maybe not you as the adult. He designed it for you as the child. Do you understand how good God is to you, the child? God loves adults. It's true, and he's concerned about adults. But you touch kids, you have to deal with God. He has set aside children as the special demographic for extra protection and attention, especially from his people. And if you get sex and marriage wrong, it is the kids who will pay the price, and he has no time for that business. God loves you, kids, and if you are wounded and hurting, there's a really good chance it's because the adults in your life stepped outside of God's design. Everything God says about sex and marriage is for you, kids, because he loves you, kids, okay? So we're going to talk a little bit about what that means for you as adults. But I want to make sure that there's no confusion over how this is good for kids and there's no other way. Every other design, every other aspect, every other approach to sex and marriage will cost kids something. Right now, statistically, um, based on a U.S. Census Bureau's um, data from 2008 to 2012, the number of kids who reach their high school graduation, having all three of their social and emotional staples met, you want to guess a percentage of the number of kids in the United States who graduate from school, having all three of their macronutrients in their life every day, what do you think the percentages of the kids who, who get there? You think 25%? 17? 17 is actually the right number for black youth. Only 17% of our black brothers and sisters will make it to their high school graduation fully nourished. What about the general population? 27? So the number is 46. Okay, 46% of kids will get to their high school grad. That means that 54% are malnourished, emotionally malnourished in some way. There's something that they were made for that they're not getting. And let me be very, very clear. If you didn't get the love of your mother, the love of your father, or stability, you're not doomed, right? You're not doomed. It does mean that you're going to have some struggles that God did not intend for you to have. And if you grew up with all three of your macronutrients, it doesn't mean it's going to be a scot-free life. It doesn't mean you're not going to have struggles. In this day and age, 
There's no way to avoid struggles. It's a hard time to be a kid. But you're not going to have the same struggles that your friends do who are missing out on these macronutrients. So I want to look quickly at God's prohibitions on sex. Because every single one of them, everything, every single thing that God says, don't do that, is directly related to a kid's needs. So tell me one thing. Like, what's one thing that God says, don't do that, when it comes to sex or marriage? What? What's one thing? Good. Don't have sex before marriage. Now, again, we're going to talk a little bit about why sex is beautiful and incredible and all of that, but biologically speaking, what is sex? What is sex for on a biological level? It's a baby-making thing. It is the activity to make babies. So God says, don't participate in a baby-making activity until you are fully committed to the person you're making babies with. The people who do have sex before marriage, even if they're living together, those kids, by the time they're five years old, are 119 times more likely to see their parents' relationship break up. Okay? It's an incredibly unstable situation. And if they're not cohabiting, there's a really good chance dad's not going to be there at all when the baby's born. Okay? Premarital sex is baby making without the lifetime commitment and is massively risky for babies. What else? What are some of the other things God says no when it comes to sex and marriage? So, yes. So, adultery. Okay? Um, God says don't do that. I have a friend who volunteers at um, her child's elementary school, and she was working with a group of kids. There were four little girls at a table doing some homework together, and they were half-sisters in the same class, different moms, okay? So what that means is dad was stepping out in his marriage, and he made a daughter with each woman in the same two- or three-month period. Those two girls grew up a couple blocks away from each other and went to the same school, and this year we're in the same class. But one girl had dad in her home every single day. The other one would see him maybe for a dinner every other Saturday. Which little girl was in the counselor's office and the principal's office and on food stamps? Right, the one with no dad. You commit adultery, you're participating in a baby-making activity, and you could create a baby that will never have access to you unless another baby loses access to their parent. It's a massive injustice. It makes me really angry. Okay, what else? What else does God say no to when it comes to sex? Incest. No incest, okay? Because the kid pays the price. You create a baby through incest, and we know that there's serious physical issues that could go along with that. What else? What else does God say no to? What's that? You could, don't you lust, right? Yeah. Like then he goes beyond the physical baby making and says, I don't want you to take from that woman in any way. Good. What else? No bestiality, okay? So this is a big one. God says, I don't want you to, I made man and woman very good. You guys complement each other. Look at your bodies. I don't know if you've noticed, but your circulatory system can run efficiently without anything else, and your, your neurological system can too. But what about your reproductive system? It can't function unless its complement is involved. Okay? God says sex with your complement. An animal doesn't complement 
any person. Okay, what else? Okay, so God has major prohibitions against homosexuality. And we see this clearly in Malachi. It says, Malachi chapter 2, it says, I want you to be, this is the passage where God says, I hate divorce. I hate divorce. Because he understands that divorce, the shockwaves of divorce go out long and far through everybody's life. But he says, I want you to be faithful to the wife of your youth. I made you to one in flesh and spirit. You're his. Do you know why? It's not because it's fun. It's because I'm seeking godly offspring. God says, I'm seeking godly offspring. The reproductive aspect of marriage is, is littered all throughout the Gospels, all, all throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. Now, if a child is raised in a same-sex home, they're not going to have the mom and dad that they deserve. Right? Homosexuality, it goes against the complementary aspect. You're not having sex with your complement. But a child raised in that home has to lose something to be in that home. And no adult should make a kid lose anything. Every adult should conform so kids have all the needs, all the social, emotional needs that they're made for. And then some divorce. Divorce is the other one. Major prohibitions against divorce. It's acceptable only in, in certain situations based on adultery. And I would say... Um, issues of abuse, serious physical abuse. There needs to be separation for the protection of the wife and the child or the spouse and the child, right? But generally, divorce is devastating, not just for the heart of the kids, but also for their long-term health, right? Divorce is an ace, an adverse childhood experience, and um, it wreaks long-term trauma on a child, so those are the major prohibitions, and um, I had this nice long thing about what sex is and way too much material here. But let's do Q&A. Is that okay? Let's do Q&A. Okay, good. So do you want to put that up on the screen? We'll see what you guys got. Need a little drum roll or something? Okay. 36 upvotes, this better be good. So sex, sexual desire is designed by God and is good, but not okay outside of marriage. What do I do with my sexual desires until then? You master them. You're not a slave to your sexual desire. You master them. This is training. This is a training ground. And it's hard, especially for young men. I don't know why God decided to give 14-year-old boys the level of testosterone flood that he gives for, with really no healthy outlet. But this is what I think. I think that if a 14-year-old boy can master that and govern his sexual urges rather than being governed by them, he can probably do anything. Here's the thing. When you get married, it's not like you get everything you want. Okay? You're always governing yourself. You're always channeling your sexual desires. Right? Even in a healthy marriage, both the husband and the wife have to give to the other person. That's actually part of what sex is, is choosing the best for the other person rather than yourself. That's one major, major problem with porn, is porn is all about getting. 
And biblical sex is all about giving. Okay? So you need to master your sexual desire. It is crouching at the door. Right? And it can consume you. But you have the power to overcome. Everything that you need to be victorious is in Christ. I will say, too, that um, you don't need to tell everybody everything. Right? That's one problem we have with social media is there's lots of oversharing. But you do need to tell somebody everything. Okay? So if you're having a struggle, a sexual struggle, you need to tell somebody that somebody needs to be trustworthy because this is precious information. And so you need to let them in on it because what you keep in secret will rule you. If there's one thing that you can't talk about or you're keeping a secret, I guarantee you that thing will run your life. And it will not be a good God. It will be a tyrant. Okay? So your sexual desire is something that... Um, you're going to need to master, and you're probably going to need some help. Okay, so bring in some trustworthy results. That's a great question. Is it better to divorce if you're always fighting with your spouse? Wouldn't it be better for the kids if you just divorced? Okay. <clears throat> I get this question a lot from people um, because they say, well, you want my kids to just see us fighting all the time, or shouldn't I just get a divorce? There's actually more than two options there. The other option is you grow up. Okay? You grow up. Here is what, so it's hard to get actual numbers on divorce and how many people divorce for what reasons, but people will be like, well, we need divorce because of the abuse. So, from a civil perspective, there's something called no-fault divorce. There's at-fault divorce and there's no-fault divorce. So you're found to be at-fault if you're abusive, um, if you're addicted, if you abandon the relationship, right? Those are the reasons that it used to be that you could get out of a marriage. Somebody had to be at fault. And then we changed that and said, we're going to have no fault. You can just get out of it if you want. And now it's easier to get out of a marriage than to get out of a contract with your plumber. Really, okay? Here's the, so we think about 80% of marriages end not because somebody's at fault, not because abuse, abandonment, um, or addiction. 80% of marriages end because parents can't get along. Now, let me tell you what that really means. That means that the mom and dad are fighting, or they have issues, or one parent's got some baggage, or the other one's kind of controlling, or this one's really critical, or whatever. And the parents say, you know what? <laughs> this is just too hard. It's just too hard. This is too hard for me to work it out. Boy, this, this cross is so heavy. I just can't carry it. Here, kids, you take it. Okay, that's what divorce is. Divorce is the parents saying, if it's not abuse or abandonment or addiction, divorce is the adult saying, this is too hard for me to deal with. I'm going to have the kids deal with it instead. So the other option is stop fighting or learn to fight better. Find a mentor, read some books, go to counseling. In essence, you need to grow up and change so that your kids don't have to deal with the lifelong fallout of divorce. And that's simple and difficult, but so is everything else in the Christian life, okay? And God has the ability to transform your marriage. Okay, that was a great question. Are there only two genders? Let's talk about tomorrow. Okay, is a woman's purpose limited to being a mother? No. I am the founder of a nonprofit organization. I have spoken at the United Nations. I have lobbied um, members of parliament in Australia and spoken before the Taiwanese legislature. 
Um, no, absolutely not. But nobody else can be a mother to your child except you, ladies. So don't ever outsource it, right? You are irreplaceable in the life of your kids. And most women realize, you know what, I really can't do it all. I can't have a full-time job and be the full-time mom that I want to be. And so you know what, there's some trade-offs. I, I say to my girls, like, you can have it all, but you probably can't have it all at once, right? So there's times in a woman's life and in a man's life, honestly, too, where you have to prioritize so that you can have the family that you want to have. Um, and it's give and take, right? Um, we could talk. No, we won't. I won't go there unless you want to. Okay, what's next? I love your shirt, Katie. Where'd you get it? At my favorite thrift store. Thanks for asking. <laughs> right? How much was it? 250 Okay, thanks. Can Christians support their LGBT community friends without going against God's wishes? Okay. Let me say this. You must support your, Christian, your LGBT friends. It's a biblical requirement. You must be the most loving and sacrificial person in the life of your gay and transgender friends. When they think about the people who love them the most, you need to be the top of their list. Okay, you need to not just accept their invitations to go out, you need to initiate the time to go out. And one of the reasons I started blogging and writing about all of this is because I saw Christians kind of limiting things to two options, either stand on the side of truth and defend traditional marriage, or don't say anything about that so that you can love your gay family and friends. And here's the reality. If you are biblical, if you love the Bible, and if you're going to follow the Bible, you hold on to the truth about marriage and sex in this hand, and you don't let go. And you hold on to the worth and the value of your gay and lesbian friends in this hand, and you don't let go. And you have to do both with all of your might. And most people can only do one or the other, right? Most of us are either really good at this or really good at this. But if you want to honor Christ, you're going to do both. Now, the problem is, that's very messy. And so sometimes I tell people, I'm like, they'll say, I don't know, like, if I should go to my friend's wedding, like, she's getting married to her partner, and I love her so much, and she knows that I love her so much, but I, like, can't do that. I just totally disagree, and I just feel like I'd be going against God, and, I, oh, I'm wrestling through it, and I'm like, because you're being biblical. That's why, Right? The two extremes are really neat and easy, right? This one over here, you just talk about the truth all the time, and you never have to deal with, like, opening your heart and working things through with your gay and lesbian friends. And this one over here says, well, I'm just going to love you and support you no matter what, and I'm never going to say anything that would ever challenge you in any way. And I'm never going to go, you know, say anything about my principles. I'm just going to sacrifice everything for the sake of the relationship. You've got to do both. So these are both neat and easy and clean and sinful. If you only do one or the other, you have to do both with all your might. And the good news is we have a Savior who showed us how to do that, right? He was full of grace, and he was full of truth. And he knew exactly how to love people and abide by what? What is it? Can you be a Christian and buy? Great. Oh, Minecraft. Mike, what happened to Minecraft? Okay. Okay, good. I'm going to go with, can you be a Christian and buy? All right. What do you mean by buy? What do you mean by bisexual? 
Do you mean that you're having sex with men and women? Of course not. Of course not. You get to have sex with the counterpart that you commit your life to because your babies deserve to have their mother and father. Now, can you feel attracted to men and women and still be a Christian? Yes. Because the goal of Christianity is not heterosexuality. The goal of Christianity is holiness. And I've got friends who are same-sex attracted who are out-holying me and out-sacrificing me and out-justicing me. And their same-sex attraction hasn't gone away, but they govern it. And they put it at the foot of the cross, and they say, this belongs to you, God. My identity is not going to be shaped based on my sexual feelings. My identity is going to be based on who you say that I am. And I'm a saint. I'm a child of God. And I'm actually here to be your agent of reconciliation for the world. So none of you guys should be basing your identity on anything other than what God says about you, certainly not about your feelings about anything. If, if, I, if my identity was based on my feelings, it would be stingy because I don't like to share my money, right? I, I actually have a really hard time sharing any of my stuff. There'll be like little kids running through the house. They'll be like, Miss Katie, can we have an apple? And I'm like, oh, kids, you're not going to eat that whole apple, and I don't want you to waste it. I'm like, can I slice it up for you and give you a little slice instead? And they're like, I'll just take the whole thing, and I'm like, Right? It's hard for me to share my stuff. It's hard for me to, I'm just not very generous. That's a part of me. I want God to change it. There's times where I do a better job at it, but it's, I don't, it's just something that's kind of endemic to me. But my identity is not based on whether or not I'm generous. My identity is based on who Christ says that I am. Um, I want to talk, again, a little bit about sexual labels as well, because it's actually really normal and kind of typical for you guys to be labeling yourself, right? Most of you guys, when you think about yourself, you're com you'll come up with a label, like I'm a band geek, or I'm a bookworm, or I'm a jock, right? Or I'm a gamer, or whatever. Because you're all asking the question at this age, where do I belong? Where do I belong? Like, who do I belong with? And it's okay to ask those questions, right? And most of those labels are kind of harmless. And they have to do with hobbies or how you dress. Sexual labels are different because sexual labels are connected to sexual behavior. Okay? And sexual behavior is risky. I, like, here's a little secret that your health, your sex ed teacher isn't going to tell you. There's no such thing as safe sex. Okay? There's no such thing as safe sex. Sex is always risky. You're always vulnerable in every way that you can be vulnerable. Sex is never safe. Never. There are only safe relationships. And the way that you know that a relationship is safe is because it's the relationship where you've devoted your entire life to each other forever in front of your family and friends, not in your heart, right? You've committed to one another in front of your family and friends. So when you are messing around with sexual labels like gay or bi or trans, right? What you're saying is my identity is based on a sexual behavior. None of you guys, A, should be, in, unless you're married, should be dealing with sexual behavior at all. It's risky. 
okay? Like sexual, there's no safe sex for you guys right now. It's all risky. Okay. Is premarital sex a sin? Yes, it is. And it's really destructive. Um, not even just premarital sex, like hookups, right? Right now, there's like a hookup epidemic. And hookups are really dangerous. What? No. What happened? What's going on? Can people stop using these questions as a joke? No. No, because you're high schoolers, and this is how it works. All right. Okay. So, oh, come on. What were we talking about? Premarital sex. Okay, hookups. Hookups, hookups, hookups. You know what happens? You naughty babies. You're so naughty. Let's see what time it is. So you know what happens with hookups is you're hooking up, and maybe you're not even having sex, but you're, like, really making out heavily. Do you know what happens to the girl? What happens? She, the oxytocin, right? That oxytocin, it starts going in her, and it's telling her body, trust him. He loves you. You belong with him, right? And then there's the hookup, and the next day he totally ghosts her, right? Or he walks past her, pretends like he doesn't, like nothing happened, right? And there's something chemically inside of her that goes, but he belongs to me. He belongs to me. Don't I belong to him? Doesn't he want me? Hookups are bad for guys and girls, but it's devastating for girls. It's devastating for girls. I got a statistic in here. No, no, no. No, maybe I don't. Hookups are connected with an increased risk of depression and suicidal thoughts for both guys and girls. But girls who are sexually active are more than three times as likely to be depressed. Triple your chances of depression if you're having sex before marriage. Okay, the reason why God, I don't know if you've caught on to this, but God doesn't call things a sin for no reason. God calls things a sin because they damage you. Everything that God says is good is because it's for your flourishing. Everything that God says is a sin is because it damages you and other innocent people. Okay, how does pornography affect marriage and relationships? So hookups... <laughs> you guys are brilliant. So hookups exploit... Hookups exploit this the way that girls are wired... Oh, I love you. Well, let's do some more of this. This is really nice. Okay. So the way that it works is that girls bond through close contact because that oxytocin is released. And that's why hookups tend to exploit how girls are wired. Pornography exploits the way guys are wired. So guys are visual in a way that girls are not. And girls, this is why your dads make such a big deal about what you wear is because he was a guy, and he knows what guys are thinking, and he knows how they see your body, and they, he knows that they're very, very visual. So what porn does, this is actually a really beautiful design, is whatever a guy is looking at at the time of climax, it bond, he bonds to it, okay? So whatever a guy is looking at at the moment when he, like, you know, finishes, um, that is the thing that is seared in his brain, and then he wants it again and again and again. So if you're looking at lots of porn, 
that's not what real women look like, right? You're conditioning your body to want that and that alone. And it's like a drug. And it actually will rewire the neural pathways in your brain so that that's all that you want. And it actually makes sex and intimacy within marriage really, really hard for a guy. We're actually seeing the first wave ever of mass impotence in men in their 20s, okay? Because it has so damaged men's brains when it comes to real sex. So the good news is that that wiring is really amazing in marriage. Because think, if the only time a guy ever climaxes is when he's looking at the face of his wife, that means that that becomes the most beautiful face he sees anywhere anywhere and it does not matter if the wife is nine months pregnant or has a hundred degree fever or if she has massive bedhead that is the face that his body associates with the best time of his life right and so marriage is this amazing design where you're having the physical closeness and the woman's body is saying this is the guy that deserves my trust I belong to him because of the oxytocin and the way that his visual wiring works is he looks at his wife and she's like literally the most beautiful person in the world because the visual wiring has conditioned him to think there's nobody more beautiful than she is. And I call it holy beer goggles, <laughs> right? So you put on, you have a little bit of beer. I mean, you guys don't. You don't know what I'm talking about. Um, but like you have a little, you have something to drink and suddenly... Everybody's good looking, right? Because it, it changes the way. You, so that's what happens with sex in marriage is it doesn't matter what the wife looks like or if she has a bad haircut. She's the most beautiful person in the world to him. It is, it is a ridiculous design. And, and it's for our flourishing. Okay. And I don't know how much time we've got. So last question. Okay. How do we talk about Jesus? Whoop. And this topic to people who are transgender, for, for transgender laws, same-sex marriage, ideas like gender fluidity, things like that. Let's talk about that tomorrow. How should Christians respond when the LGBT community asks what they think about gender? Okay, I love this question. I love it when my friends who are gay and lesbian um, ask me this question. So I've had a couple gay friends um, ask me, what, what do you think about that? Um, and I'll say, Google my name and you'll see that I'm one of the biggest supporters of traditional marriage on the internet right now. And they're like, what? Are you kidding me? Well, I thought that we, and, but I thought you loved me. I mean, like, you listened like nobody's ever listened before. And I'm like, yeah, you're right. Because there's absolutely no conflict between me advocating for marriage because it's a social justice issue for kids and me loving you. And both of them are things that are required of me from God. But I like it. I like initiating relationship with my gay and lesbian friends. And then they find out later that we disagree on policy. And they're like, huh, well, that's interesting. I guess, I guess Christians aren't, aren't jerks after all, right? So like, I would just say go first, right? Go first with the love. Go first with the support, right? Go radical with the pulling them into your life. And when that question comes, like, I sweat. I still get really nervous, but I'm like, Jesus, fill my mouth. And say what you need to say, you know? Okay, so I think that that's it for tonight. And tomorrow we're going to talk 
gender, same-sex attraction, and transgenderism. We're also going to stay in chat afterwards. So if you have more questions about tonight, um, we'll just like meet over here when we're done and we can just keep talking. Because like I said, I want you guys to know more about this than anyone else. I never want you to be ashamed of God's design because it is so brilliant and it's exactly what the world needs right now. And then think of more questions and we will do this again tomorrow. Oh wait, and then let's pray, right? Yeah, he's like, that's, that's God's code for like, we're wrapping it up. So let's pray. Okay, Lord, you are so good. And even the things that the world says are the worst about Christianity are actually one of the best things for the world. And I pray that you would make these kids and teens warriors who show the best love to their friends who disagree with them and who can stand firm in any conversation about these cultural issues that are so divisive. Make them ambassadors of your truth, God. And more importantly, give them the power to live it out in their own life to a world that needs to know what right living when it comes to sex and marriage really looks like. And thank you that you give us your spirit that makes it all possible. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Give Katie a hand.